0: If we haven't met, my name's John Sherrill. I'm one of the pastors here at Fifth Reformed Church, and it's great to be worshiping with you uh, gathered here and those joining online as well. Uh, We're starting a new series for the fall that will be taking us through the letter of 1 Peter, uh, a letter that Peter wrote. It's one of the shorter uh, letters in the New Testament and and, um, unfortunately, sometimes overlooked, now, I feel like in the, in the Reformation, some of the letters of Paul uh, got some prominence. and Of course, we focus on the Gospels as the bearing witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But uh, almost unwittingly, sometimes the smaller books of the New Testament slide by the wayside. Uh, but Martin Luther said of First Peter, uh, it along with a few other small letters in the New Testament, that it will, quote, show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary for you to know about salvation, even if you were never to see or hear any other book. Interesting, huh? It's a strong claim. I mean, it bears looking into just for that that claim alone. Uh, the Apostle Peter wrote this letter. We know that because he tells us so right at the end with the help of his partner, Silas. Uh, and this letter is um, can be understood as kind of a follow-up. The, the Gospel of Mark is largely understood as being based on the Apostle Peter's testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if in the Gospel of Mark, we have the Apostle Peter saying, hey, here's what Jesus did, and here's the story of his resurrection. In, in 1 Peter, we have the Apostle Peter then unpacking what that means for us. So we're gonna read a portion today, and then we're gonna dive into the, the why of the series a bit more. So listen now to 1 Peter 1 verses 1 through 12.
1: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Thanks
0: Dave. Let's think of, for a couple minutes about the, the title of the series, Against the Tide. Why, why that title? Uh, and to think about that together, let's look at the, the people to whom Peter was writing and the situation in which they found themselves. And it all comes right out of the first couple verses that we read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect... Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter was writing to Christians living in Asia Minor, which we know today as the modern country of Turkey. I think we have a, a map of that. There it is. And you can kind of see the, the provinces, the Roman provinces of, of Peter's day, uh, Bithynia and Pontus up to the north, Galatia in the middle. So this, this area of the world was uh, the crossroads of culture. It connected Europe and Asia, and these were all Roman provinces. So Paul was writing to the Christians living in that area. Now, some, some New Testament letters are very specific. Some written to a specific congregation, some are written to a specific person. If you think of uh, First and Second Corinthians, those were addressed to a specific congregation. Or First uh, Timothy, directed to a particular person, First Peter is a bit different. It has the name of the person who wrote it, and it was intended as, as a general letter meant for wide distribution around a region. So this letter that Peter wrote was intended to be circulated among the churches in this area of the world. And, and as a general letter, you know, it's not going after specific local uh, concerns, but kind of broader movements. Things that are concerning all of the churches of that region in that particular day. So that's that's the tree. This letter is barking up. Again, all of these are Roman provinces. Peter was writing to quote God's elect, meaning the followers of Jesus scattered around these promises, uh, these provinces, and that was the situation. They were scattered. You know, Paul refers to the people he's addressing as exiles scattered. And that's loaded language for God's people, right? That would immediately call to mind the history of Israel and the, the exile to Babylon experienced by God's people. Uh, here's, here's a verse from Second Chronicles. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So right at the beginning... The Apostle Peter, in writing this general letter to the churches in this region, is pointing back to a time when God's people lived as strangers in a foreign land. Really important. He's calling this image to mind. As exiles in Babylon, God's people no longer lived in the covenant nation of Israel, they were the covenant people scattered abroad, living in a nation that likely opposed them and their faith. See, in Israel, they were the majority. In Babylon, they were a displaced minority living in a foreign land with foreign ways. And as as you can trace throughout the Bible, there's always a concern here, right? How, How would they survive? Would their faith flourish or would they accommodate to the Babylonian culture around them, because the pressure to accommodate would be tremendous, right? For churches, for the churches to whom Peter wrote, there was incredible tension between the prevailing Roman culture in what we know now as modern day Turkey and the claims of Jesus, because the fundamental claim of Christians is that Jesus is Lord. So if you hold to that pillar of faith right out of the chute, you are in contradiction to the claim that Caesar was Lord, so, you're living counterculturally. You're living in a way that's different from all of the people around you. Because naming Jesus as Lord meant the Roman Emperor wasn't. To follow Christ faithfully in that culture meant that you would be uh, ostracized, you'd experience opposition, you'd be tested, tempted. It would be very hard. So, Peter wrote this letter to those churches of those provinces of Asia Minor to encourage them to build them up in their faith, to acknowledge the tension that they were experiencing and to coach them in how to live against the tide. How do you actually do that? Because that really is a fundamental question, right? Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And throughout the history of the church, we've grappled with what that actually means. How do we do that within the particular culture in which we find ourselves right now? How do you remain faithful to God in a broader culture that's resistant to, maybe even hostile toward, the ultimate claims of Jesus? So, in in writing 1 Peter, the apostle is addressing these concerns and coaching these congregations of the early church in how to live against the tide of prevailing culture while not retreating from it. Right? Because those are the ditches on both sides of the road. If, If you. It get too enculturated, you can begin to live more by the values of the culture than the kingdom of God. You, you become an enculturated church. You accommodate the culture. And the ditch on the other side of the road is that you're so afraid of the culture that you end up just separating yourself and there's no engagement with the culture. But Christians are called to be in the world, not of the world. And you, you can tease out these nuances even more. Even in... Uh, Uh, Judaism of Jesus' day, if you think about the four major sects of Judaism, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, and just look at the way they engaged the Roman culture. If you think about it, the Sadducees largely accommodated the culture. They were kind of in bed with the Romans and just did whatever the government wanted just to hold on to power. The Pharisees were the grassroots believers kind of doing their own things, Uh, The the Essenes, they're the Dead Sea Scroll people. They're the ones who moved out into the desert and said, we're done with this culture. The best way to engage it is to retreat from it and go do our own thing entirely. The Zealots are the ones who powered up and got angry and said, we're using political power to take over this culture, to overthrow this thing. Any of that sound familiar? (laughs) Right? I mean, God's people have to wrestle with how, how to be in the culture in which we live. And the second thing to realize is whatever your answer has been to that, you are convinced that you're right. The zealots were convinced that they were right, and the, the Essenes had bailed on their responsibility. They were wimps, not up for the fight. The Essenes were absolutely certain they were right. The best way to engage this broken world was to retreat from it and be a holy huddle all by themselves. Maintain purity for God. They were convinced they were right. So who's right? See, Peter is writing to followers of Jesus, living in a culture it was opposed to their beliefs, set, set against it. So how do you actually live this way? See, Christians must ask themselves how the messages of the culture in which they live uh, are impacting how they understand the gospel. We all have to ask that. And there's a very real danger that we'll begin to blend the messages of gospel and culture, get into that ditch on this side of the road, a cultural accommodation, become an enculturated church. And there's, there's a risk that we might power up and, in a sense, retreat from the culture in some way, either by getting angry and trying to flex our political muscle or retreating to a holy huddle, right? Uh, if you kind of go to this ditch, the enculturating side, it's a very common thread in American Christianity these days. The, the kind of now a few years old book by David Platt called Radical really addressed this. He thinks that most North American Christians believe in, quote, a nice middle-class American Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Ouch. He's talking about a church that is trending toward this ditch, right? Right? And we see it. This is, these are truths, right? It's the exact kind of cultural danger First Peter was written to address. We need to live against the tide of culture, not with the flow of culture. And of course, as followers of Jesus, we're called to engage because the fundamental message of the gospel is that people are not the enemy people are the creatures made by God whom God loves for whom Jesus came and the gospel is for everyone everywhere so if any of our answers to these questions about how to engage culture have a whole category of people slopped off over here as the enemy we are wrong and the gospel should correct that first peter tells us where to start how to live against the tide of culture as you live within it. The first step, says Peter, in living against the tide is to remember who we are in Jesus, that that we belong to God. When life is hard, when your faith and culture is just, they're bumping heads like that, the first thing to do is to remember who you are, to remember whose you are. Some of you uh, know this quote from the famous Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. The world will ask you who you are, and if you don't know, The world will tell you. Now, the world in this context largely means the culture in which you're living. The culture in which you're living will ask you who you are, and if you don't have a ready answer, the culture will tell you who you are because it wants to do that. So what does our culture say about who we are? This is a very inadequate summary, so give me grace. This is just to make a point. Our culture says you are what you do. I fall prey to this all the time. You're introducing yourself. Hey, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm a pastor. Why do I lead with what I do? That's a thing. Our culture says you are what you have. Materialism, consumers, it's everywhere, right? You're more valuable if you have more. Our culture says you are how much you make. Our culture says you are how you look. Our culture says you are what you drive. I mean, it tells us we're consumers, that our identity is wrapped up in our possessions and what our that our worth as people is attached to our our worth financially. It tells us we're worth more if we're physically attractive and worth less if we don't meet the the culturally defined standards of physical attraction. It tells us that what we drive is a big part of who we are. And again, super simple, just here to make a point. And the point is, all of those things are lies. They're not even half-truths. They are just flat not true. And yet, you know and I know that we continue to be impacted by them even though we know they're not true. This is important. This is really important. When we're unable to tell the world very clearly who we are, who I am, the world will tell us who we are and it doesn't have a very high view of us. But you know what, all those messages of the culture about who we are, you know, you you are what you have, you are what you drive, you are how you look, all that, that's all wrong. Because do you want to know who you really are? You are the creation of a loving creator. Every human being is the creation of a loving creator. And in in that very basic sense, that makes every human being a child of God, because no human being anywhere came into existence without God making that happen. Life does not come to be without God causing it to happen, without God continuing to sustain life even right now. So every human being in that basic sense is a child of God. And, And for those who have trusted Christ, who've come to grips with the claims of Jesus and have really had a moment where they give over control of their life to Christ, there's even more to say about your identity. And it's what Peter wrote to those early churches in Asia Minor, those people who had trusted Christ. Here's what he said, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Remember the sprinkling with blood thing, back to the blood covenant of the Old Testament. When you're sprinkled with the blood, it means you're a child of the covenant, and in this case, forgiven. You know, uh, Jesus has fulfilled all the demands of the covenant on our behalf. So chosen by God. God wants us. God wants you. God values us so much that he picked us. He didn't have to. He wanted to. And this is kind of a theology 301 conversation, but John Calvin referred to this idea that God chooses people as the most comforting of doctrines because in a world filled with uncertainty, followers of Jesus can know their faith is a gift and that God chose them long before they chose God. This this is what it looks like when you've crossed the line of faith and are looking back. You see... That while you felt like you were choosing Jesus, really God was at work long, long before you ever did that. God enabled your response. God empowered the whole thing. Sometimes when you're on this side looking forward, you can't see or feel that. But can I get an amen for those on, on this side? Yet you look back and it was all God. I did not do this. That's why it's comforting. God wants people. God wants people. So remember who you are. This was the apostle Peter's first point in how to live as a faithful follower of Jesus. And, and it wasn't new to Peter. He wasn't like breaking new ground here. Remember what Jesus said when his disciples asked him, um, when, when they said, hey, teach us how to pray. Teach us to pray, really is what they said. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our father in heaven. Well, let's just take the first two words, our father. In the original language, it's our daddy our Abba, which assumes a relational connectedness with God. It assumes that we're the child and that God is the loving, perfect Father uh, who, who cares for us, has our best interests in mind. So Jesus said, basically, whenever you pray prayer like this, and I don't take that to mean that you simply repeat the words that he told his disciples to pray. I take it also to mean a, as a pattern for all of our praying. And I take Jesus to mean that whenever you start praying, the very first thing you, could, you should do before you start listing your requests, before you start throwing all of your concerns and pains and hurts and desires out before, the God, before God as he invites us to do, the very first thing you should do is remember who you are. I think Jesus did that on purpose. That was no mistake that he said, when you pray, start by remembering who you are because he knew that this world is full of counterclaims, trying to tell us who we are." He said, "When you pray, remember that you belong to me, and remember that I'm good. I have your best interest in mind. You're safe with me. Or or think of the baptism of Jesus. Remember that? When he came up out of the water, remember what God the Father said to Jesus at his baptism from Mark 1? You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. My understanding is that anyone who is in Christ can hear the words that God spoke over Jesus as words that God this day speaks over us because we're in Jesus. You are my son, my daughter, whom I love. And don't miss the last part, with whom I am well pleased. Not because of anything we've done, but because we're in Christ. That's who we are. God chose you because he loves you, and in Christ you belong to him. He demonstrated his love for you on the cross. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he wants you back. That's how much he wants everybody back. And and Peter goes on from there in a a kind of spontaneous outburst of praise. Verses three through 12 in his letter are one continuous run-on sentence. It would drive any grammar teachers crazy. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. See, in Christ, we're given new life. Not just like a religious idea by which to live, not just a spiritual silo for life, an entirely new life. And this is a, a simple summary of the basic message of the Bible, that way back we took our own path, we veered away from God, we're the ones who left, God never left, we walked away, and in our shame and guilt we've been trying to hide ever since. And then we point the finger at God and say, where did you go? But God so wanted us back, so wanted a restored relationship with us in which we could live that we would enjoy and he would enjoy that he came back to earth in person. Didn't send somebody else. He came himself to make it right, to do everything that he could possibly do to call all of his human creations back to him except for flipping some kind of divine switch to make us believe or make us little robots. But he has done everything he could possibly do to call us back to him. In his life, death, and resurrection, he provided everything necessary for us to step back into a fully reconciled relationship with God. This restored relationship with God, says the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Roman church, quote, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But when we trust Jesus, there's new life that comes. And, and the new life is really new. I, I get that in the, in the routines of our, of our weeks, the regular rhythms of life, it might be easy for this to kind of get foggy. Or somehow living your Christian life, you think, am I really different? Is something? That... I just encourage you to think about this. Look at the, at the fruit in your life that is present only because the Holy Spirit is present with you. It's a good spiritual exercise to list this stuff out because life is really new with Jesus. Different, transformed from what it used to be. Or as one author put it, this new birth is the decisive transformation of life that has come in accordance with God's mercy and by the means of the resurrection of Jesus. In his great mercy, God has given us new birth. Remember who you are, a person with a brand new life, in Christ, New faith, new priorities, new disposition, new attitudes, new behavior, new guidance from God by the Holy Spirit for following Jesus and bearing witness to him in the world. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And, and the new birth has results. According to the Bible, we're born into something. Look at what Peter writes. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Remember who you are, people with a living hope. You know, the the new life into which we've been born is one brimming with hope. Our hope isn't just kind of philosophical or intellectual or emotional in nature, nor is it just like rational and heady. Our, Our hope is personal, right? Our hope is in a person, and that person is alive right now. Thus we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because Jesus is alive right now. Remember who you are, born into a living hope, alive right now, and born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or or fade. Remember who you are, a citizen of God's kingdom, a person for whom Jesus is preparing a place right now, a recipient of God's good and certain promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will give you rest. I will come to you and take you to be with me where I am. In Christ, we are people who possess right now an imperishable inheritance that will never spoil or fade. Think, think about that, imperishable. It can't die, will never spoil. It, it can't be ruined. It'll never fade, meaning it won't gradually grow faint and, and disappear. It's a living, permanent, and durable inheritance. Solid, take it to the bank kind of thing. And Peter knows that living against the tide of culture is hard. Living by our belief that Jesus is Lord is hard work in this world. We face testing and temptation. We face opposition and persecution and social alienation. And we have to encounter all those things, always remembering that the people through whom those things are being channeled toward us are not the enemy. God loves those folks. Wants them to have fullness of life in Jesus. See, we face opposition today. Now, it'll look a lot different than the church back in Peter's day, those churches of Asia Minor. It'll look different than they experienced it, but it's there nonetheless. And I want to argue changing very quickly because gone are the days of Christendom. Right? Gone are the days where we as Christians can simply plant ourselves in the midst of the culture and assume that everybody else will get it and that people will just come to church. We need to rethink the way we position ourselves in the culture, the postures we take, the way we engage. We need to rethink our assumptions about where the world is at and how we can best place ourselves here to point to Jesus. And there's a lot of rethinking that needs to happen. In this letter to 1 Peter, Peter tells us where to start. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Those are the overarching truths that frame everything else we, we do and are as believers in the broader culture. There's new life available to us in Jesus. If, if that's new to you, if you're exploring the faith, I certainly found as a senior in college when I became a Christian that there's no magic formula. It's simply humbling yourself before God and saying yes to as much of Jesus as you understand right now. That's where to start. And then talk to somebody about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. The place to start in living against the tide of culture is to remember whose you are. In Christ, you belong to God. You are a dearly Loved child, God is a good, loving, and perfect parent, and in Christ, He is well pleased with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for your word, thank you for the gospel, thank you that you really did it, that you came back to this earth in person. In the person of Jesus who is the Christ and you lived for us, you died for us, you rose from the dead for us, you ascended to heaven for us, you're alive right now, interceding for us, helping us, you have our best interests in mind. You love everyone everywhere and want everybody to come back home to you. So God, reassure us in our our inner beings of our identity in you, especially in a culture grappling with such a deep identity crisis. Help us find the truth about ourselves in you and what you've done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name,
1: amen.